Well, it's a great day in the life of our church. We're glad that you're here with us to celebrate. We have a new young lady born in the family of Christopher and Amanda. We're excited about that. We have a new gay engagement, Max and Bree. So we're excited about that as well. Hallelujah. And we have some guests with us today, and we're glad that you're here. I trust that everyone has a study guide. If you don't have one, if you'll raise your hand, we will uh, be sure that you get one. Uh, Daniel, we've got some folks. Oh, here we have Caleb right here. Pass those around. We're moving into our study in the book of Joshua. We're still in the opening chapters of Joshua. And if you will turn in your Bibles to that place, uh, we'll be referring to some of the verses that are found there. Joshua 1, 2, and then in chapter 3, verse 5. Well, I would ask the question, what are you waiting on the Lord for this morning? All of us likely have something that we would like to see God do that He has not done yet. Most people in America are waiting on something. A lot of young people are waiting to get older at least old enough to get a driver's license and do some other things that they would be able to do when they get a little bit older. But a lot of older people are trying to get younger, and they're waiting for those special vitamins to come in to restore their youth. People are waiting on things. Some people are waiting to get a new car. They just can't wait to get their credit approved to get it. Others have been paying for two or three years, and they can't wait to get out from under those payments and sometimes even give the car back to the banks. It's amazing. Some people can't wait to move out of their little bitty tiny apartments into a larger house. Others would like to get out of that larger house and get in a little small condominium where they don't have all that yard work to do. What are we waiting for this morning? Now, if you are waiting on something, and if you are an American, and especially if you are a young person in America, here's something you really need to know. As a guy, Robert Johnston wrote this down in 1871. He had been uh, reading the Bible and he came to this conclusion. It is the way of God to move slowly. End of quote. It is the way of God to move slowly. And that's exactly right. God works progressively, building on things that He has done, sometimes waiting years, as in the case of Abraham, David waiting to be king, others in the Bible, God moves slowly. It's just the way of God. And what is that fourth fruit of the Spirit? Patience. Yes, patience. And He wants us to exercise patience and have faith in Him as we wait upon Him for whatever we're waiting for. Now get ready. The nation of Israel is eagerly poised to enter the promised land that God had promised to give them. But, hold everything, Joshua 1 and verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. You have to wait three more days. Now I know what some people are thinking. If I only had to wait three days for what I want God to do, I'd be happy as a pig in a mud hole. Well, uh, God has His timing, and it may be three days, or it may be three years, or it may be three decades. Now, let's put that in perspective. There is a verse in Exodus 12 
that says, Now the time of the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. That's confirmed in the New Testament, Galatians 3.16. And then you remember Moses sent out the 12 spies after they came out of Egypt. And they went and spied out the land, gave a bad report, the people rebelled, and they turned an 11-day journey into 40 more years. So 430 plus 40, that's 470 years they have been waiting. Some of the early ones may not have known what all they were waiting for, but yet that's a long time. That would have put from where we are now, way back at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther and those guys. That's a long time to wait, and now three more days. But the reason that we're waiting three more days is that there are some important things that have to happen, three notably. And the first is, we have a soul to save. Joshua 2 and verse 1. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim and said, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they came and went into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, <clears throat> excuse me, and lodged there. Notice that he sent the spies out secretly. Not like last time with Moses. We said last week, this is a theocracy. God working through a man. We're not going to have a vote because the people don't even know that the spies have gone out. Joshua knows he's going into the land, but they need to gather a little military reconnaissance to know what they're going up against. So they go to this uh, house of this immoral woman, Rahab. Why would two Israeli guys go to the house of an immoral woman? Not for immoral purposes, certainly. But that was a place where men came and went without anybody asking any questions, and men could kind of get lost there. Unfortunately, in our day, men can get lost on the Internet or the television right in the comfort of their own homes. And that just might be, it just might be an indication that their souls would be lost even as the souls of those men who visited Madame Rahab. Now, if at the least it would be a serious danger signal. So there they are in Jericho, and the reason they're there is that God had on His mind before the foundation of the earth one soul who lived in Jericho. He may have had on His mind other souls, but we don't know about them. But this one soul has to be saved, so judgment has to be delayed for this one person. This person didn't know much about God, but what she did know, she really believed. And she believed it to the extent that she was willing to engage in some very dangerous business based on her faith in God. Where did she get that faith? Let's look in chapter 2 and verse 9. And here is her confession of faith. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like when Gideon was afraid to go against the Midianites. And you remember God said, Okay, I'm going to give you a sign. You take your servant, and you go down to the camp of the Midianites, and you'll, you'll hear something. And sure enough, they crept up, and they heard this guy telling his buddy that he had a dream. 
And his dream was a great big loaf of barley bread came tumbling down and destroyed the camp. And the other guy said, this is nothing but the sword of Gideon. And they're going to come in and they're going to crush Midian and destroy us all. And Gideon was encouraged. Now the spies here, I'm sure, were encouraged when they heard this in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is her testimony of faith. Now an important question. How does one get into the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11? You're familiar with the Hall of Fame of Faith. So uh, Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Very important. Verse 2, For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith the men of old gained approval. And in this case, the woman of old. And then Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So now the question. How does one get into the hall of fame of faith? Multiple choice. Number one, tell a really big whopping lie. Number two, do some good works. Number three, marry into the right family. Number four, other. Which is other. Yes, it's other. The answer is other. What is other? The answer is Rahab, whose name appears in the Hall of Fame of Faith, amazingly, exercised her faith through the good works of hiding the spies and helping them to escape. And we've just read her confession of faith in Joshua 2. Now go with me to the New Testament. James 2.25. Hold your finger there in uh, Joshua and go with me to James 2.25. In the same way. In what same way? This is amazing. This woman is compared to Abraham. Back up to verse 23. James 2. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now wait a minute. I thought, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God that no one should boast. Well, you've got to read that whole little passage, and we'll read some more. And what that means is a man is justified not by faith alone, is faith, and not by faith that remains alone, but it's faith that works itself out in what you do. In other words, if you don't ever do anything, you might not have true faith. Your good work should be evidence of your faith. Now look at verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them off in another way? Justified by works, the next verse explains, verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. 
So the faith that you have doesn't remain alone. It's faith alone through which we're saved, but it doesn't remain alone. It results in some things in our lives. Then Hebrews 11.31, here we are in the Hall of Fame, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She did do some good works, but it was God who saved her because of her faith. She did marry into the right family, but that won't save you. We get a clue in the book of Ruth. Ruth 4, 18-22. These are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron, Ram. To Ram, Amenadab. To Amenadab was born Nashan. To Nashan, Salmon. To Salmon was born Boaz. To Boaz, Obed. To Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse was born David. Now in number 7... When the tabernacle was being raised with Moses, this was about 39 years before Rahab came on the scene. Twelve princes came. One, I'm talking about men who were a prince, came, and one from each of the tribes of Israel. And the very first guy, number 712, was Nashon. Nashon. If his last name had been Jones... He could have probably played wide receiver for the Florida State Seminoles. Now introducing Nashon Johns as wide out. That just sounds like one of their players. At any rate, he's not a football player. Now the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nashon, son of Amenadab, the tribe of Judah. He was a great prince from the tribe of Judah. And his son Salmon married Rahab. And because of that union... Rahab, the harlot, was found in the lineage of Christ. Now someone might say, well, a harlot in the lineage of Christ, that's not much good. But you see, a holy God sees us all in that same way. And besides that, in Matthew 5, there are five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Three had committed immorality, one was accused of so doing, Mary, because the, she was found to be pregnant before the marriage was consummated. And I'm quite sure that Ruth was likely accused of immorality because of her Moabite nationality. That's what they were known for. And you can read about that in Numbers 25. Just what did Rahab do? We're back in Joshua now, chapter 2 and verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here to search out, search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land, in other words, spies. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. There's lie number one. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the men went out. And I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. There's lie number two. Usually when you tell one lie, you have to cover it up with another. And I've shared with you before when I was in high school and decided one Saturday morning with a friend of mine, we'd do a little trail riding in my Nash Rambler. 
Now, Nash Rambler was a little bitty car, about the size of um, about the size of uh, Jordan's Mini Cooper. Yeah, and the Nash Rambler had wheels on it about that big, and that thing got stuck out in the woods, and I knew my dad was not going to be happy about that. So we hitchhiked in and got to a payphone, and I called my mom and told her I'd be having lunch with Jim, and Jim called his mom and told her he'd be having lunch with Bob. And then we hitchhiked down to my dad's auto parts business and got the shop truck that had a hoist on it. So we'd pull that car out and get it all back, and nobody would know a thing about it. Then we got the truck stuck. That was a bad, bad day. And my dad called. Some of the men said, hey, Bob took the truck when they were looking for the truck and the business, and he called Jim, and Jim said, Jim Mom said, I thought they were over at your house. Oh, that was really a bad day. One lie <laughs> leads to another lie. And now we've got this lady with two lies already. In verse 6, she brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men, that's the Canaanite men, pursued them on the road to Jordan, to the fords. As soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. And then there's verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. There may have been other men in the past whose immorality was discovered who had to go out the rope, uh, out the window on the side of the wall. Now, they like to utilize space there. Uh, Yvonne's dad, when he was in college, lived, would you believe, in a room in Tiger Stadium. You'd have to be a football fan to do that. I mean, in the stadium. And uh, they like to utilize space there in Baton Rouge, and so it's not unusual that people were living on the wall. And, of course, that gave um, men a way of exit there over the wall in the rope if uh, need be. And these guys uh, needed it at that time. Now, here's the big question. Why did God bless Rahab when she told a whopping big lie, two of them, in fact, and we never know that she repented, and God never took her to task for what she did, and she wound up in the Hall of Fame of Faith? Now, let me tell you that Bible commentators are all over the map on this one. And some of it gets confusing and rather convoluted. But I've got a simple explanation for you. I'm not sure it's a real good explanation. I I like it okay. Some people wouldn't like it. Some people would say it's heresy. But at any rate, it makes sense to me. The ninth commandment says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. This command reads, Neighbor, not enemy. I would say that no enemy or no one acting as an enemy in times of war or acts of war is entitled to the truth. Now, your dad is going to have to go through that this afternoon and make sure. Yeah, my dad was acting as an enemy, so I decided not to tell him the truth. <laughs> we can't go there. But in Scripture, we see Ehud, the judge in Israel, he told Eglon, the king of Moab, that he had a special message for him from God. Get all the people out of here, out of the court. And the message was an 18-inch dagger in his stomach. Well, you might say there was an element of truth in that. But what about when King Achish of Gath, Philistine, asked David where his raiding parties had been when David had gone over to the Philistines? And David said, in the Negev of Judah. 
But actually, that wasn't where he had been at all. He had been raiding the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, all who were enemies of Judah. It was clearly a lie that he told. And then in 1 Samuel 19.11, Michael, David's wife, helped him to escape out the window again. And then she made a dummy and covered it over in the bed. And when Saul's soldiers came, she said, Oh, David is sick in bed. And they went back to tell Saul, and that bought some time for David. And then in 2 Samuel 17, Jonathan, not Saul's son, another Jonathan, and Ahimaaz, David's spies, were hidden in a well by a woman who got them down the well, spread a covering over the top, put some grain, and then when the soldiers from Saul came along to ask where they were, she said, oh, they've already crossed over the water brook. And it seems that um, all of that was in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, my example from the New Testament would be Rahab, James 1.25, Hebrews 11.31. She was the soul that was saved by hanging that scarlet cord out her window. And that was going to be the signal when these guys came in to take the land. That was going to be the signal that she and her household would be saved from the destruction. Now, we don't know if her family became Christians, but uh, we know that evidently she was a believer and God had blessed her. This may have been a signal that had been used before. I don't know. You might say, people saw that red card, they wonder what's going on. She may have used that as a signal before on some things. Uh, We don't know about that. But all through the Scripture, we know, there's running the red cord of redemption. And it begins way back in Genesis when God kills the animals to make the covering, for to make the clothes for Adam and Eve, and then it goes right on through with the blood sacrifice pointing to Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. She was saved by the scarlet cord out the window. Well, that's the first thing. We had a soul to save. Now we have a separation to make. Joshua 1, verses 12 through 14. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Joshua is reminding these two and a half tribes of the deal that they made with Moses back in Numbers 32. Turn with me, if you will, to Numbers 32. This is another instance of God's permissive will. He knows that you have your desire set on something. You don't want to give it up. So God says, okay, if you want that, you can have it. He gave them their request and sent leanness to their soul, you remember. Now, we're going to go through this pretty quickly in some, in Numbers 32. But the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had exceedingly large number of livestock. Obviously, they were wealthy. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad, the sons of Reuben, came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying... All this land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. 
And they said, verse 5, If we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now this land was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. There's going to be a problem there, and we're going to see that God is not happy with that. I carry on verse 7. Moses said, Why do you discourage the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord God has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. In other words, when the spies rebelled. Uh, they discouraged the sons of Israel, so they didn't go into the land the Lord had given them. Verse 10, So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and He swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, for they did not follow Me fully. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel and made them wander in the wilderness forty years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. If you turn away from following Him, He will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Now here's the deal that they made. They said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll settle our families over here on the eastern side of the Jordan River, but we'll come across with the fighting men and we'll help you conquer the land and then we'll come back and live on the eastern side. So God says, okay, that's what you guys want. That's what you get. But guess what? That was not pleasing to the Lord. There's a big problem with that. Where do you worship God in that day? You worship God where the tabernacle is. And then when the tabernacle, we're finished with the tabernacle, we're going to build a temple in Jerusalem, and that's where the presence of God is going to be found. And that's the reason they would come, even in Jesus' day, to Jerusalem to worship God. That didn't mean you couldn't have private worship, but a part of the official sacrificial system, the ceremony and the priesthood and everything combined with that, that was in Jerusalem. That's where God's presence was. And it would be very difficult to cross that Jordan River with all the family and the little ones to get to Jerusalem every time we're going to worship God. So God has in mind that this is not a good idea. But they decided that's what they wanted. So Joshua is saying, okay, uh, don't forget what you agreed with Moses. Now, we can understand a little more about that. But first, what did the promised land represent from last week? Full spiritual maturity in Christ. We said it's a picture of that. Uh, becoming really mature in Christ and uh, understanding the fullness of what God desired for us. Do you really want that full maturity in Christ? Do you really long for that? Well, the men of Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, called the half-tribe because half of them went on in but the other half stayed on the eastern side. They made their decision. They had tasted of the blessing. They entered the promised land, but then they chose to live outside of God's provision. Let me tell you what's said about them in Judges chapter 5, verse 16. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart, meaning an uneasy conscience. I guess so. They were trapped in the love of the world. It's indulgence its pleasures, its sin. We say now, well, how do you know that? Well, we're coming to that. 
But in the New Testament, there's a warning for us. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Again, a very difficult passage. Here's what it says. It's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. Now, would that be a Christian? Or would that be a non-Christian? Because if it's Christian, it looks like he's losing his salvation. And we don't want to say that. I think it would be a person who was going to church, and they were in a Bible study, and man, they were seeing things happen, and lives changed, and the Spirit moved, and they were a part of things. And then the world, with its pull, just kind of, eased them away from that and they went a little further and they went a little further and finally they didn't have any more faith their faith was in the pleasures of the world they tasted of the things of christ but they turned back to the world and everything it had to offer how can we avoid that in our lives here's a good word from john piper quote i know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. That's pretty good. Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor, makes it short and simple. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Is sin bitter in your life? Then it's easy to turn to Christ. First Chronicles 5. You don't have to turn there, but the eastern tribes mustered a pretty good army. That'd be Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh. They had 44,760 valiant men. And they fought and defeated the Hagarites and other enemies. And they became wealthy. And then when you become wealthy, there's a tendency to fall into idolatry. And you start saying, the strength of my arm has gotten me this wealth. Moses warned them against that back in Deuteronomy. So, their apostasy resulted in something. And if you look in First Chronicles 5, verse 25 and 26, you see that they were the very first ones to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians when Tiglath-Pileser came and overran the land. They were the first to go. It took some time, and then the northern tribes were captured, but they were right there out on the outskirts on the firing line. They didn't even have the Jordan River to protect them. What about us this morning? Are we looking for God's best in what He promised in the promised land? Are you willing to pay any price to lay hold on that? Yeah, there are going to be some giants in the land. There are going to be some strongholds that have to be overrun and cast down. Or is the world calling your name? And it's a pretty strong pull from the world. Young people, the world has a lot to offer. Is sin fun? Oh yeah, it's hilarious fun for a little while. And then you see the price tag. There's a separation to make and these tribes decided they didn't want what God had to offer. Then there is a cleansing to complete Joshua 3 and verse 5. We've seen a soul to save, a separation to make, now a cleansing. 
Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves. In some translations it says, Sanctify yourselves. Now we know what sanctification is. But let me give you Alan Redpath's definition here. A quote, a reminder. The wonder-working power of God depends always on the sanctification of His people. The level on which God meets men depends on the level on which we as Christians are prepared to meet our God. End of quote. And we're told in the New Testament God is looking for cleansed vessels to use for His kingdom's purpose. Now there were a number of laws in the Old Testament that had to do with external sanctification, external cleansing. Exodus 19.10, the Lord said to Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. When you get ready to do business with the Lord, you've got to be cleansed. But that was external cleansing. Things like washing their clothes, abstaining from certain things, it had to do with ceremonial purification. But in spiritual purification or internal sanctification, the important thing is the condition of the heart. Do you believe in God's promises? Are you willing to purpose to obey His commands? We'll stumble and fall and we have forgiveness, but do I purpose to obey God? Or do I just say, hey, I don't have to obey. I'm covered under the blood. Well, be careful. Faith works itself out in works. And part of those works would be obedience to the Word of God. New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul is telling us to clean up our act. God is looking for cleansed people. He's not looking for clever people. He wants those who are willing to put off the old self and get that new attitude of heart, get a renewed attitude of heart, and put on the new self created to be like Him. It's a three-part process there. Now, we like the Israelites have to do both. I may have to cleanse my home of anything that would give the devil a foothold. Some of the things coming in on the television perhaps or maybe on the internet or maybe magazines or books or whatever. But those things give the devil a foothold and we don't want him to have a foothold because he's going to build a stronghold if he gets a foothold. So there's external cleansing, but that's not the important thing. Internal cleansing, personal holiness is the key. Now sometimes we're scared by that word holiness. Some uh, holier than thou, some pious attitude. Here's Alan Redpath's definition of holiness. This is uh, the little book, Victorious Christian Living, that we're following here. Holiness in the positive sense is nothing more and nothing less than the indwelling and infilling of the Holy Ghost expressing the life of the Lord Jesus in me. On the negative side, it's the putting away of all known sin. There's holiness, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that I can become like Christ through His power. Do you want to see God really work wonders in your life? 
do you want to see God really work wonders in our church? Then we're going to have to be a cleansed people. No one may know what's going on in my heart or what's in my house. Yvonne and I are finding out what all is in our house right now. <laughs> but some things need to be cleansed. Uh, J.C. Ryle reminds us, quote, In justification, the word to be addressed is believe. Only believe. In sanctification, the word must be watch, pray, and fight. End of quote. Last section, waiting on the Lord. We've got some questions and answers to questions from the Scripture. We'll zip through these pretty quickly here. Do you often find yourself making plans, getting filled with enthusiasm, overflowing with resolve, only to become disheartened and discouraged before you reach the goal, usually because you have to wait and nothing's happening? Psalm 27:14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wait on God. We're going to see what else to do here. Number two, what does God supply for those who wait on Him? Well, how about provision and protection? Psalm 33.20 Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help, there's the provision, and our shield, there's the protection. Number three, do you tend to become troubled in your spirit and begin fretting when you hear of others who are not following God's ways, but who appear to be successful in accomplishing their own goals, education, business, courtship, marriage, whatever? Psalm 37.7 Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his own way because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. That's pretty good. Some spiritual rest in the Lord, irregardless of what anybody is doing. Sometimes God let, lets evil men go on until it's the time for their demotion. And then God exalts the one and puts down the other. If you determine to wait on the Lord for His insight and protection, what should you be doing while you are waiting? How about following God's ways? Because God blesses His ways. Psalm 37, 34. Wait on the Lord and keep His way, and He shall exalt you to inherit the land. And they had the promises, they had the land as a promise. We have many other promises, including the whole New Testament. What do you get after you patiently wait for God? After you have patiently waited for God? I waited patiently for the Lord. This is Psalm 40, uh, verses 1 and verse 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me and heard my cry. In verse 3, He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. So we see here a new song, a new outlook, and a testimony of God's work in your life. That is, if you're willing to wait until He answers the heart cry that you have raised to Him. Number six, do you get tired of waiting for things to happen in your life and discover that you need a source of strength greater than yourself? Psalm 59.9 Because of His strength will I wait upon Thee, for God is my defense. You ask the Lord for strength, He'll give it to you if you're willing to have a cleansed heart. 
Number seven, why should a Christian wait upon God? Psalm 62, 1, Truly my soul waiteth upon God, for from Him comes my salvation. He's the only one that can really solve your problem. He's in control of earthly things, heavenly things. He's in control of everything. And He's really the only one that can solve your problem. Now, if you can do something about your problem, I would say in the power of the Lord, go ahead and do it. But if there's something you can't manage and you need help with, take it to the Lord. Take everything to the Lord. Number eight, pretty good one. Are you waiting on someone to do something and you find yourself growing exasperated because they have not done it? If you put your expectation in other people, that's a pretty precarious position. Here's the verse, Psalm 62.5, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. Uh Uh-oh, number nine, what happens if you refuse to wait on God, demand to have your own way? Psalm 106.13, They soon forgot His works, these are the Israelites, they waited not for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, and He gave them their request, and sent leanness into their soul. That's one of the saddest verses in Scripture. God's permissive will. Where He sees that you want something, like Balaam we mentioned, and you're just going to have to have it. And God says, okay, if that's what you want, go ahead with it. That's where these two and a half tribes were. And number ten, what must accompany waiting for the Lord? Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in His Word do I hope. The Scripture and hope. You've got to put your hope in the Scripture. A couple of more that you didn't have room for on your uh, study guide there. What happens when you commit yourself to wait on the Lord and then the answer finally comes? I'll tell you joy and gladness. Isaiah 25, 9. It shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him. And He will save us. This is our God. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Well, what do you get if you're willing to wait upon God? Therefore, will the Lord wait that He may be gracious unto you. And therefore, will He be exalted that He may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him. Now, I want to read that one more time because we want to close with that one. I think you do have one more on your paper there that says, is there, is there ever an end to waiting? Proverbs 23.18 says, Surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. But go back with me to Isaiah 30, verse 18. You might want to mark this verse in your Bible. Here is the reason that we need to pursue sanctification. Therefore, will the Lord wait? What's He waiting for? That He might be gracious unto you, and therefore be exalted. That He might have mercy upon you, blessed are all those that wait for Him. Now, in that verse... God says He is waiting on us. What's He waiting for? Therefore will the Lord wait that He may be gracious to you. What's He waiting for? 
He's waiting for us to be cleansed. He's waiting for us to be sanctified. External, internal, whatever it may be. There's the reason for the delay. We had a soul to save, Rahab, her family. We had a separation to make. These tribes that demanded their own way didn't want to go into the fullness of what God had. And then we had a sanctification, a cleansing to complete. And I want to leave you with the encouragement that that third one is the one we need to camp out on. A sanctification, a cleansing to complete. We want to see the fullness of everything God has. And that means we're going to have to go into the land and we're going to have to possess our possession. It's going to be a war. It's going to be fighting giants. There will be some casualties. We don't want to become the casualties. But we want the fullness of everything that God has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these uh, interesting passages in the Old Testament that tell us that a life is not always easy and just uh, cut and dried. Uh, Lord, we need Your strength. Uh, we need an understanding of Your Word through the Spirit that enables us to understand and apply. And we need that power that only You can give to turn from the world and all that has to offer, no matter how beautiful the land may be, and go with You into the promised land and uh, face up to the challenge of everything that You have for us there. Lord, we know that these challenges make us stronger, give us a greater trust in You. We pray that during this Christmas season, uh, we will not be enamored by the world and all of its advertising and uh, all the excitement that it has to offer. Uh, Lord, we want to celebrate Your birth and we want to be encouraged with Your deliverance through a Savior, uh, the blood of Christ. Guide us now as we have a time of fellowship and as we go into our worship service. We thank You for the privilege of serving You. And we pray all these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.